Well, thanks heaps, Ben, and I'll add my welcome to Steph's as well. It's so good to be here together. My name's uh, Jono. I'm one of the pastors here at church. If I've not met you before, I'd love to meet you later on, so come and have dinner with me and say good day. Um, but looking forward to getting into this passage here. Keep that open in front of you if you've got a Bible there, uh, and let's think about it together. Now, living your best life, I don't know if you heard that phrase, what comes to mind when you hear someone is living their best life? What would the average coastie say someone's doing when they're living their best life? They probably wouldn't immediately think of being rich. We all know that's a bit too shallow to say that anymore. Some of us secretly still believe that being rich is living your best life, but you don't say that out loud anymore. I reckon for the average coastie, we'd say it involves sunshine, summer over winter, I'd take friends, some good drinks, some good food, freedom, enough money to pay the bills, not so much work though that it has to kind of run my life, travel. Ideally, we have a good partner, someone who's going to be good company. Now, as you get older in life, maybe as you get closer to retirement, living your best life might change. Your definition of what living your best life is might change. It might involve maybe a nice family home, still like dominating in the sporting field, but maybe like the lawn bowls field or something like that, down at the club or something like that. Family, friends, health, a dog, a caravan, all of that, living your best life. You know what no one ever mentions, though, when they talk about living their best life? Giving. No one ever says, living their best life, giving. Generosity, giving my money away to others sacrificially. But amazingly, if you have a look at the passage in front of us and some of the ones that we've looked at in the weeks beforehand, those are exactly, those words, generosity and giving, it's... It's those kind of words which come up again and again. I've said that wrongly. You can see this idea of a rich, good life, living your best life, all in the context of giving. Have a look. Go go back into chapter 8, verse 2 and have a look there. It talks about this idea of rich generosity. Chapter 8, verse 4, the privilege of giving. 8, verse 7, the grace of giving. Uh, chapter 9, verse 2, closer to where we are tonight, see there, there's this enthusiasm to give, for the opportunity to be a part of giving. And then as we come to our section here tonight, pick it up in verse 7 there, it talks about how God loves a cheerful giver. Chapter 9, verse 8, God's abundant blessing, abounding in good works. Chapter 9, verse 10, God will supply and increase your store Enlarge your harvest, chapter 9, verse 11 there, enriched, verse 12, overflowing, all these words which sound a lot like living your best life. It all sounds really, really good, doesn't it? But ironically, all of that is tied up in this thing of giving, generosity to others. Now, let me just be really honest for a second, right? Let me just tell you about my week and how I've thought about all of this. Let's get a bit meta for a second. This is the third week in a row, except for the break we took for Mother's Day, uh, where we've been working our way through chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. And each week we've come up again with this idea of giving and generosity. Now, do you want to know what I thought when I looked at this was my passage tonight? Again, we're looking at this topic. I was like, oh man, seriously? I'd kind of rather preach on something else. A couple of weeks ago, um, it, it felt like we've covered this a lot, right? 
Now, I don't know, this might be one of your first times with us tonight, and I met a bunch of people who are new here tonight, and if that's you, I do want you to know that it's not always about money. Instead, what we want to do is let the Bible set the agenda for what we're going to talk about. So, this is the third and last week on this topic of generosity and giving. It's not all about money. Um, But can I just say, um, uh, we, we want to let God set the agenda and so we're going to work our way through this passage together tonight. Um, now, if, if you're sceptical of all this and you think that this is all a church is trying to get your money or something like that, can I encourage you, take what's said tonight and put church's needs to, to the side and just consider how you could be generous in general. Where, wherever you're going to give, don't let this idea that churches are out to get your money to be the thing that would dissuade you from giving, put that aside and consider how you might be generous. Because tonight is actually about your heart, uh, what's going on for you. And more than that, there's this incredible opportunity that you'll see here because you'll see how good generosity is. But everything I've just said, as I've clarified, you know, if you're new, you know, blah, 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 give, give wherever, all that kind of stuff... Do you see what all of that kind of betrays? Deep down, there's actually something in us, the way I was thinking about this passage before I came to it tonight, deep down there's something in us which is out of sync with the way that God sees this issue of generosity. So my natural bent is to perhaps be a little bit embarrassed about talking about giving and money and generosity. Um, If you're a guest with us tonight, you might feel awkward about this topic as well. Now, why? Why all the awkwardness? Why the hesitation? I think it's because God sees this question of generosity very differently to the way we do, which actually means there's something revolutionary that we need to catch tonight from God's Word something that is incredibly actually deep down really, really good for us (laughs) and not just us but actually the world around us as well. And so what might initially feel like a burden or something that's a little bit uncomfortable to think about according to this passage is actually a treasure chest of goodness. And friends, that's actually been my experience as I've dug into this passage this week. What I've found is incredibly good things from our good God and so I'm excited for what God has for us here in this passage. Let's pray and we'll have a look at it together. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, thank you so much that you are a God who speaks, that you're kind enough such that you would bring us words of eternal life. We thank you for Jesus, for his grace, that through his poverty on the cross, we have been made rich spiritually in him. And Father, please, Lord, I pray that tonight would be a feast as we dig into your word. I pray that you would feed us and stir us and challenge us and do something deep in our hearts. Help us to see the world and money and generosity and all these things as you would have us, for our good and for your glory. Amen. Well, the context here in 2 Corinthians is really important to catch to get your whole sense around what's going on in the passage. And so let me just remind us quickly what's going on. Paul's writing to a Greek church in Corinth, the Corinthians, uh, and his goal, one of his goals in this section, is to help alleviate the struggling Christians in Jerusalem who are going through a famine. 
And so there's a bunch of people in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians, who need help from the Corinthians and others. Um, Paul's already talked to the Macedonian churches who've given generously already to this cause, even though they're doing it tough themselves, but they're like, try and stop me, we want to give our money to help our brothers and sisters over there. And the Corinthians have promised to give generously to these same Christians in Jerusalem as well. And so now here in this section, Paul's getting in contact and he's like, you guys said you were keen to give, so let's make good on that promise. So you guys ready to do what you said you would do? So all that's in the background then as you come to chapter 9, verse 6 there, and here you catch this broad principle, here it is, you reap what you sow. You get back according to what you put in. Uh, Have a look there at verse 6, he says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, talking about sowing, when you sow seed, that's the stuff you chuck out there that's going to turn into plants and what you reap is what you get back, the crop you get back. But notice he says there, remember this and then he drops that piece of wisdom. It's as if this is a, a principle or a known saying that you should have already known about, like one of those little sayings that we have, what goes around comes around, actions speak louder than words, uh, the grass is always greener on the other side, never hand feed a hungry shark, although I actually made that last one up, but the other ones, they're just generally good advice, broad advice for life that are usually true, That's what's going on there in verse 6, it's a proverbial saying, something that's generally true. Now, sure, there's always exceptions, right? You could sow a bunch of seed and then a drought could come and nothing might grow, your crops could burn, exceptions happen but the general rule is true. You sow a a bunch of seed, you'll grow a bunch of crop in return. Now, here's the thing to get, you're meant to feel a little bit of a tension around this idea of sowing. There's a tension involved. See, sometimes there really is no fear of, you know, wasting your seed. If I, now for me, I'm not a farmer, right, but if I go to Bunnings and I buy a $5.50 box of lawn seed to fix up my lawn, I'm not like painstakingly reading the box to make sure I'm not overdoing it with the seed. I don't really care. I'm like a kid putting sugar on his porridge, right? I'm just handfuls of it, get it on there, leave it. I don't want anything, I want it all covered, right? It was $5.50, I just don't care. But here, picture a farming context similar to the Corinthian scene, grain farming, which would have been one of their main sources of food is when you farm wheat, grain. Uh, The very thing that you use as your seed, the thing that you chuck out to grow more plants, is the thing you eat. So you can either process it to eat it, or you can use it to sow and so get a bigger crop. Now imagine for a second that you're a poor, none of us are farmers, right? Well, maybe some of you, like pineapple or someone's like, I farm, but (laughs) a few of you do, I'm sure. But imagine for a second you're a poor farmer and you arrive uh, at the start of the season ready to grow stuff and you've got one bag of this wheat seed And imagine you've got a family and you want to feed them, but you've got to think about the future as well. Do I get the crop for the future or do I eat it now? Sow it or crush it up and make some bread, what do you do? Well, the bigger picture says that you have to sow it. You've got to get that seed out there because if you do, in the long term, then you'll have more seed to grow more stuff and you'll have plenty of food as well. But there is a tension here. 
And so the saying, verse 6, he who sows sparingly, or you'll reap sparingly, he who sows generously, eventually, you'll reap generously. But there's a tension in all of that. But here's the thing, in our chapter here, what's the confidence that someone has about the future? Why can anyone, in all, in broad, not just in farming, but in all walks of life, why can anyone sow generously and have a confidence that they're going to reap generously in return? The simple answer is God. See, God's hand at work in these verses. Have a look at verse 7. It says that God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 8, God is able to bless abundantly. There's a God who blesses. Verse 10, in fact, have a look there. God is the one who supplies seed for sowing and bread for eating. And so God is the one who gives us a basis for actual confidence about the future. You can sow your seed and trust God. See, some people think about this world as if it's like a closed circuit, the whole of creation. Uh, There's these laws of nature at play and they rule all things and so cause and effect, all that, but the laws of nature, but there's no supernatural being or force at work. It's all just a closed circuit to the outside. No God who would interfere, just cold, hard cause and effect. You could call this philosophy naturalism. Lots of people believe that this is really how the world runs. There's no God out there who's going to dabble and do stuff and change or intervene, just cause and effect and that's it. There's even a God-believing version of this called deism, where someone might say, yeah, God created the world, like an engineer or watchmaker or something like that, he wound it up and then he was like, good on you, that's a good creation, but I'm not going to interfere, I'm not going to get involved in this world now that I've made it. Friends, that is not the world we live in. That's not the world we live in. Our God, our loving God, is intimately involved in His world. In fact, He's intimately involved in your life. And His desire, His delight, as you see in these verses, is provision and care and abundance and flourishing. And so it's in that context with the assurance of the God who is there, that Paul says, sow generously and you'll reap generously because God's hand is at work. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, he was talking about the miracle where Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding in, in John. This is my paraphrase of what he said, but he says, God's always the one who's been turning water into wine. God does that all the time. He causes the grapes to grow on the vine and the water to get taken up into the roots and send sun to make it grow into a nice grape and then processed into wine, all all that. God's always been turning water into wine, but sometimes He just does it a little faster than usual, like at the wedding when Jesus did it supernaturally, the non-natural way. Every good gift is from God. And if you've got eyes to see, you see it all the time. I was down at the baptisms at the Haven this afternoon, right? And um, these 20 or so people, some of you can testify to this, you got dunked, you're all wet from being baptised and you guys are standing on the beach there and it's pretty cold, like the wind's blowing, the clouds are out, there's no sun and we're all sitting there and there's these cold people and we're praying for them and then we're going to sing 
And then in this glorious moment, the clouds just like busted apart and beautiful sunshine just shot across the water and hit the backs of all those cold people who were sitting there after being baptised. And I don't know, I'd love to know how warm that felt to you. But I was like, look at the provision of God. He didn't have to part the clouds then and there, but he did. That's just a little parting of the clouds. But God's provision, God's hand is over everything. Every good gift, everything that happens is all from him. It's his provision. And Paul's saying here, you can trust the generous God who provides. And this is true, though, this principle of what you sow, you'll reap. This is true in so many spheres of life. All over the place, this is true. Think about friendships for a second. Uh, It's possible to be guarded and kind of closed off, reluctant, to invest and care about other people for a whole bunch of reasons, that that may be the case. Uh, But then there are those who care deeply and are heavily invested and relationally generous and sacrificial, not because they're trying to get something in return, but just out of love for others. It's usually those people who sow a lot in friendships and relationships who find this richness and depth in relationships Now, of course, there's always exceptions to that, but generally that's true, isn't it? You reap what you sow. This is a principle for much of life. Now, Paul particularly applies this principle, verse 7 onwards, to the context of giving and of money. So, have a look there, verse 7, there's the principle, verse 6, but look at verse 7. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, For God loves the cheerful giver, so give because you want to, not because someone's making you. Verse 8, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you'll abound in every good work. And as it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever, as he quotes Psalm 112, which was read for us. But did you notice through all of that, the provision of God which undergirds all of this. And so, when it comes to money, we can be generous. Because think about this, who gave you your money in the first place? It was God, the one who provides. Have a look at verse 10. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, this is God, God who provides seed to the sower and bread for food, will also supply and increase your store of seed. Now, seed here has been talked about, I think, as money. I think that's what verse 10 is talking about, sowing generously with your money. Because it's God who provides the seed in the first place. He gave you your money, and so use it to be generous for Him. And it's God who provides the bread you need to live off as well. A crop won't grow unless God sends rain on it. And and, and if God brings the sunshine... The seed that you sow, the strength you use to chuck it out there, all of that is actually from God. And the same is true of our money. It's almost wrong to say our money, isn't it? (laughs) When you actually stop and think about it for a second. The same is true of God's money, which He has given you to sow generously with. He's the one who's given you your money. Now, you don't believe me? Think about it for a second. Who was it that caused you to be born in this country and not another into a family where you could be supported and educated and skilled up so that you'd be able to work to earn a living if that's you? It was God. 
If you get out of bed tomorrow morning and work hard at work and swing a hammer or smash it out at a keyboard for the day, who gave you the energy to do that and the strength? It is God. Who gave you the intellect that actually makes you good at investment and trade and business and all that? God. All of that comes from God. Our money is actually His money. And so why does God give us money? Why does He do that? Well, one of the reasons is, verse 8, so that we could be rich in every good work, which includes, I think, the giving of money. Verse 11, so that we might be generous on every occasion. And so what's on view here is generously giving away money to those who need it, to support Christians and so on in in this chapter here. But what's expected, notice, is a harvest in return. It talks about the giving of money and then a harvest that you'll get back. Now, we'll come to the nature of that harvest in a second. We're going to press into that. It's really important to get because it raises a really important theological question for us, which we need to answer. But before we do, have you caught what's been said about money? God's plan for His world is flourishing and provision and abundance and He's working in in the lives of Christians to supply their needs such that they might be generous to others. A life of rich generosity. And it all springs from this clarity of perspective. Whose money is it? Not mine, actually God's. Why did God give it to me? Yes, so that my needs will be met, that I've got bread for food, but that I might give it away for the sake of others. And in doing so, this passage says there's an enormous blessing to be found. Now, here's the question this raises for us, which we need to tackle right now. Is this the prosperity gospel? Is that what this passage is describing? Who's heard of the prosperity gospel? Shove your hand up if you've heard of this idea. Okay, a bunch of us. This is a teaching that's really common in churches today, uh, which says, give and you'll get back. Particularly, give and you'll get back money and health and happiness and all the rest. And it could sound a little bit like what's been said in verse 6 and following. Give money and you'll get back money in return. Because God's desire for you, says the prosperity gospel, is that you would be rich. You need more money, says the prosperity gospel. Now, I could see how someone could come to that conclusion from this passage. If you squint and don't look too closely, I get how someone might teach that from this passage. But friends, it is dangerously wrong, terribly wrong. Does God want us to be rich? Think about that question for a second. Well, have a look just back in chapter 8, verse 9. The words used there, have a look at chapter 8, verse 9. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So there is a sort of rich that God does desire for you. But in fact, if you understand what that verse is saying, you'll know that if you're a Christian, if your trust is in Jesus, you are already rich. You are spiritually rich richer than you could ever imagine. Jesus lavishes us with spiritual riches through the cross. 
He became poor. He died. He went to the cross so that we might live eternally rich spiritually. But that same Jesus who died to make you spiritually rich also taught more often than anyone about the danger of desiring to be rich in this life now. Jesus says, watch out, be afraid, be scared of the love of money. Jesus says, run away from a desire to be rich here and now. Now, it's not wrong to be doing okay and to have money, but be very careful of your heart if that's what God has actually brought. Be careful of the love of money. The prosperity gospel's problem is that it takes ideas like God blesses and, and, and so on and um, reap what you sow, all that kind of stuff, and it, it majors on a minor theme in the Bible, it turns a small minor theme into a major, and then it makes that all about particularly rich now. Come to Jesus and you'll be rich now. But have a look closer at chapter 9 here. What's the focus of this passage? Chapter 2 Corinthians chapter 9, what's the focus? It's not all about you being rich, is it? That's not the point of the passage. What's the focus? It's every good work, that you'd be equipped for every good work, that you'd be enabled to be generous. It's giving to others, not focusing on the return you will get in your money. It's certainly not material prosperity now. In fact, there's a really important word to catch. Have a look, chapter 9, verse 8. This, this clarifies this for a bit. Have a look there, chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to bless you abundantly so that you have all things at all times, having all that you need. <laughs> if you're a person who underlines your Bible, grab out your pen and underline the word need there. Because there is a promise that God will give you what you need. That's a very different thing from having all the money and wealth and have it all now that we want. But He is the provider who will give us what we need. What we need to be generous to others. Now, the complexity with this prosperity gospel thing is that the Old Testament does make promises about God's people flourishing and and being rich and happy and healthy and having it all together now, here and now. The Old Testament makes promises like that. I don't know if you spotted it, but did you you see it in in the Psalm 112 reading that was read by Ben earlier? There was a whole bunch of promises about how if you're with God doing what He wants, it's going to go good for you now. Now, the reason for that is God did make very particular promises to bless His people in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, here and now. Obey God, do well, and He'll bless you in the land. You'll be healthy and happy and all that. And so, prosperity preachers will point to all these verses in the Old Testament and go, see, that's what God wants for you, Christian. But the problem is, it's out of context. Those passages are promises that are tied to a particular time in history where that was one of the ways that God expressed His blessing to His Old Testament people of God. But here in the New Testament, God has bigger and better things in mind for you. And so don't stoop to the low level of thinking the the best blessing you could have from God is to just have it all now. We have promises that shoot past this life into the life to come spiritually rich for all eternity. 
And here the promise isn't that you'll get rich if you give now, but there is a promise that you'll have what you need for every good work. And one day the reality is, I don't know if you thought about this, but one day the reality is, when it comes to your life on this planet, (laughs) uh, you won't need anything when you pass from this life into the next. But God gives you whatever you need now to remain here and continue to serve and give to others. Now, a few other pieces clarify that this isn't the prosperity gospel for us. The start of chapter 8, where this all this kicks off for that section, mentions the Macedonians, who are like the, the gold standard of generous Christians, who were so wonderfully generous. But did you notice with the Macedonians, chapter 8, 1 to 3, they gave out of, it says, a severe trial and extreme poverty. And there's no mention of them getting rich after they gave... They were poor people who gave generously and they stayed poor for all we know. Yet even for them, God gave them what they needed to be generous. Now the most obvious proof of this, just to be clear, just to close the case on this, is Jesus. If anyone ever lived a life that pleased God and was exactly how God would have them be and was generous and all that, it was Jesus. And yet he's the one who had no place to lay his head. He died penniless and poor under the judgment of God on a cross. Chapter 8 verse 9, he made himself poor going to the cross that we might be rich spiritually because there's where true riches are found. And friends, the prosperity gospel undercuts all of that. It chops the leg out of the message of the gospel and makes it all about now rather than the God that you desperately need to know. Now here's the last question, coming back to that principle in in chapter 9 verse 6, you reap what you sow, yeah, it's specifically tied to money in the verses that follow, we've seen that and so the question is, what is it that we reap? (laughs) What is the thing that if we're generous, as this passage tells us to be, what's the thing that we reap? What's the return we get? Because Paul is pretty excited about it. Paul is like, you want to live your best life now, be generous because it's really, really, really good. And so, the blessings of generosity. We've touched on this, but the first thing you get is sufficiency. Now, we've just shot down the prosperity gospel But still there's a wonderful encouragement here, did you see it? For generosity, verse 9, God will give you everything you need for every good work. It's not riches, but He will give you what you need. And verse 10, it's God who supplies seed to the sower and food as well. Now, I don't know about you, but as you consider the idea of being a generous person who would give your money to whatever whether it's the work of the gospel going out here or something else, when you consider the prospect of giving away money, I don't know how you feel about that. I wonder if you feel a little bit scared. (laughs) I wonder if you're in a context where giving away money feels risky. What if I don't have enough? What if something pops up that I didn't know was going to come and I have to pay and I... will, Will I have what I need? This passage is saying God will provide. He'll give you what you need. He's not going to let you down. Now, let's think about this for a second. Is, it, is this saying that it's impossible for a Christian to starve to death or die of exposure or something like that? 
Well, no, I don't, I don't think so. Because we learn from the rest of scriptures, in fact, that even those who face death have everything they need in Christ. And whether you die of exposure or by eating too much food and you, you know, whatever, <laughs> something will take us out one way or another. But while ever it's God's plan to keep you around on His planet to serve others and be generous, He will give you everything you need. And when it's your time to go, you won't be lacking anything. You'll have everything you need from your good provider. Now, it's very unlikely, I'll add, that you'll starve to death or something like that here in Australia because of the way God has provided by placing you in this country. We have so much, but He gives us sufficiency. He gives us what we need. Now, friends, this is meant to give us courage. (laughs) You're meant to be comforted by this. You can trust in the God who is there and He's generous. I don't know what this year's been like for you guys financially and I know some of you have just started working full-time and you're like cashed up, loving it and other people in the middle of study and you're feeling, doing it pretty tough. Different circumstances for all of us. Um, This last year for me in the context of having a family to provide for all that kind of stuff has actually been a really hard one in that interest rates have gone bonkers if you notice, if you're paying off a home um, and you're like, it must be nice to own a home but when you have a family and it's hard, that feels hard um, and inflation and all that and it, it's actually quite a, a, a scary season in some ways for my household. It's hard to work out how to pay for all the stuff we feel like we need to pay for and it can feel a bit scary Now, the temptation for me is like, well, if I just gave away less money, that would pretty much solve the problems. That would help a lot. Um, But this passage gives us courage. It gives us courage. God will give us what we need. Now, He may provide by changing inflation and interest rates or, or we may need to find income from another place or it may be that we'll learn to live with less work out that we don't need as much as we thought we did. God may provide in all sorts of ways, but I know He will provide. It's meant to give us courage. What a comfort. Now, here's the second thing, the the second valuable thing that generosity brings. It brings righteousness. Have a look again at verse 10 there. It says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, the provider, will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. God will grow righteousness in you when you're a generous person. Now, let's be clear, I'll use some theological language here, but this is not talking about your imputed righteousness, the righteousness that is given by Jesus, transferred to you because He died on the cross to save you. It's not talking about your salvation and the righteousness that's given as a free gift from Jesus to you. It's not talking about that. Rather, this is talking about character, Christ-likeness, righteousness grown in you. (laughs) He's saying you want a guaranteed way to grow your character? Be generous pour yourself out in generosity and you will receive a harvest of righteousness. And friends, that's more valuable than gold. It's seriously good value. Money will come and go. Even in this life, money will come and go. But I promise you this, none of you are taking your money to heaven. Not one of us. 
But righteousness, your character, is eternal. As an eternal follower of the Lord Jesus, your soul is worth investing in. Paul says giving brings a harvest of character. It's a wonderful blessing. Which does mean this for a little bit. Just think about this for a second. Irrespective of how much you can or can't give at the moment, no matter how small the amount that you might decide is a good amount to give in your context, this means it's always worth it. Not to mention the good that it will do if you give and help and and so on. And You you might find your money does more than you realise for those who need it around you. But even so, even if all that you can give is the most tiny amount, don't miss out on the spiritual blessing to be had here, the harvest of righteousness. I was talking to someone in my growth group a few weeks ago and objectively speaking, they're pretty close to broke, like they're living off not much money each week as a student, living out of home. But my advice to them was the advice I lived by when I was a student. Uh, Even if it's a tiny amount of money, work out a percentage that you want to commit to giving of whatever your income is. And even if that means you forego one coffee a week and you give $5 that's worth it because it fosters in you this righteous character. It it brings this harvest of righteousness, even if it only costs you, like it might be costly to give $5, but it's only $5, the spiritual benefit is worth it. And so, consider that. If it's truly generous for you, no matter how small brings a harvest of righteousness. Praise God for that. Now, here's the next blessing that kind of falls out in this passage here. What you do with your money actually does really make a huge difference. Now, the great need in Paul's time here, verse 12, um, was this famine in Jerusalem. But look at what the money does in verse 12. He says, this service that you perform, talking about the giving away of your money to the saints in Jerusalem, is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's overflowing in praise to God. But did you notice that? He says, what you do with your money here, Corinthians, will supply the needs of the Lord's people. You want the money that God's given you to use well to count for something, don't you? That's one of the goals of generosity, is that we actually do something good with the money we give. Well, good news, here in this context, history tells us that's what happened. They did give generously to the saints in Jerusalem, the Macedonians and the Greeks. Check it out, Romans 15, 26, 27, you'll see it there. They made the contribution to the poor in Jerusalem. It went through, they were pleased to do it and the money really did make a difference. Friends, may it always be true here as well that any money people would ever give in those boxes or online or whatever, any money that is given to the work of the gospel here in this place may it always be the case that it would make a huge difference. And can I say, it is, it is making a huge difference. We went to the Haven this afternoon and saw 20 or so people getting baptised, some of whom have found new life in Jesus just in the last few months. Pray that your money makes a difference to those whose souls are hungry for God's Word. For those who have an eternal need to know their God. All right, the fourth and final blessing that comes from generosity, here it is, the praise and glory of God. Not Him praising us, but us praising Him. 
You know, the Bible actually says the reason you were created, the reason we exist is for the praise and glory of God. That's why you're on this planet, that God would get the praise and the glory. And Paul here is at pains to tell the Corinthians that their generosity will overflow to the praise and glory of God. Have a look at verse 12 again. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the saints, it's doing something for people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Verse 13, because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the, of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them with everyone else. Isn't that cool? That we would do something for another, that we'd be generous or give or serve or whatever it is, but the end result is that all of that would lead to everyone praising God for what He's done through us. Isn't that amazing? God the provider steps in, He provides for His people, usually through other people being generous and things like that. And the result is that together we all praise God for His glory. I think when we give or do or serve or whatever, we like to be told, thank you. You know, we like to be thanked and told, good work for doing that. Uh, It's really generous, we like to be told. Uh, You made a difference, is what we like to hear But this brings a whole other paradigm to that whole thing, doesn't it? More than me getting thanked or someone saying how good this thing I did or you did, how good is it when we do something and the end result is people turn to God in praise and thank Him for what someone has done through them? Have you been the recipient of generosity in some fashion? Well, manners are nice, say thank you to the person who's been generous still, But more than that, the best thing you can do is give the praise to God who's used this person to to bring whatever it is he's brought into your life. And when you do that, tell the person who's been generous in whatever way that you're praising God for them. Tell them that you're giving thanks to God because of what they have brought into your life. May God get the glory in everything for His goodness to all of us. What a privilege. Let's take a moment to do that in fact. Let's take a moment now to praise God, to thank God in the quietness of our own hearts, spend some time in prayer. I'll invite the band to come up on stage as well because we're going to sing in a moment and then I'll close in prayer but take a moment now. Let's give praise and thanks to our good God. Oh, Father, we want to stop and acknowledge that every blessing we enjoy in this life comes from your good hand. From the ray of sunshine down on the beach to the food we need for another week to so much more that you've blessed us with, all of that is from your good hand and so we thank you And Lord, more than our physical needs, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ, who through his poverty 
we have been made rich spiritually, eternally, forgiven, loved, adopted as your children. We thank you for every spiritual blessing that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.